It was about 1983, 1984, right along in there. There was a singer from Canada, a young lady by the name of Ann Murray. Maybe some of you remember her. She recorded a song entitled or titled uh, "Good News Today." And in the opening lines of that song, if I can recall, she said, I rolled out this morning and the kids had the morning news show on. Bryant Gumble, remember him? <laughs> Some of us do. Was talking about the fighting in Lebanon. Some senator was squawking about the bad economy. <laughs> it's going to get worse, you see. We need a change of policy. Later on in that same song, she said, I'll come home this evening, and the same news will still be on. And then it reaches the chorus, and she says, I sure could use a little good news today. <laughs> I listened to that song this week, and I thought about Isaiah, the 35th chapter. Isaiah 35 is that good news. But you kind of have to see Isaiah 35 in the context of the book uh, of Isaiah, early part of chap, or, uh, early part of the book of Isaiah, Assyria is breathing down their neck, <laughs> and God is not pleased with His people. But not only is God not pleased with His people, in Isaiah the thirty fourth chapter, He sets it forth: God is not pleased with all the nations. In the latter part of the book, he'll talk about Babylon and captivity. So, in the recent and in the past, God is not pleased with your faithfulness. You've been unfaithful. Assyria is going to be coming. After this, it'll be Babylon. But in the midst of it, is Isaiah the 35th chapter. I want you to notice Isaiah chapter 35 and verse 1. It says, The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. That's poetic. That's symbolic. And so I want you to think of it like this. Let's suppose you're out in the desert. You've been hiking for a way. And it's dry, and it's hot, and it's difficult. And everywhere you look, the ground is parched, and it looks like things are dying, and there's no water anywhere. And you come to this kind of elevated spot, and you're kind of looking out over the landscape, and then out of nowhere, somebody appears, and they say, hey, I want to show you something. And so they hand you this lens. And they said, I want you to take this. And I want you to look out at the landscape through this lens. Say, okay. So you take and you pick it up. And all of a sudden, everything is green. And everything is lush. And there are flowers. And there is water. And there are animals that are leaping about. And then you pull it down. And it's bleak. And it's dry. And it's desert. So you put it back up. And there it is again. That's Isaiah 35. That's what Isaiah is trying to get them to see. 
This world you're living in right now, it's like that desert. And it's bleak. And it's dry. (laughs) But God has a plan. And that's what He wants you to see. That's the word that He's sending to you now in Isaiah the 35th chapter. And so you think, well, when's this going to happen? And you're told, it's coming. Well, if it's coming, what should I do in the meantime? Well, I want you to know that this is what God is going to do. This is what He is working out. And He has something for you to do now. Well, what's He want me to do? Isaiah the 35th chapter and verse 3. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful, fearful, fearful hearted. <laughs> I'm going to change that to faint. <laughs> Say to those who are faint hearted. And I don't even have false teeth yet. You know, so you can imagine what will happen when I get older. <laughs> Say to those who are faint hearted. <laughs> Be strong. Do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, He will come and save you. You know what Isaiah is saying? This is the vision. This is what God has in mind. You have an opportunity to see this. But you know what? Not everybody sees it. But you need to help them see it. And so in the meantime, as God is working this out, this is what I want you to do. I want you to strengthen those weak hands. I want you to firm up those weak knees. And I want you to cheer or to lift up the faint-hearted as God works out His plan. So that's what I want us to take a look at this morning from Isaiah, the 35th chapter. First of all, strengthen those weak hands. When it says strengthen those weak hands, the idea is that strength is that that needs to be increased. That needs to be improved. That needs to be made stronger. There needs to be a firm grip. And whenever it talks about weak, it's talking about that which is loose or that which is slipping. Have you ever heard someone say, I just feel like I'm losing my grip. You ever heard that in life? And see, that's what Isaiah is saying to them. And that's what God wants them to see. Yeah, it's challenging. It's difficult. But you need to see this. And you need to see it from my perspective. Because if you could see the world, and if you could see all that's happening... From God's perspective, it would change the way you look at things. And if you could have this hope, would that give you a little strength? Would that strengthen your grip? Now I want to ask you this too. Have you ever known someone that's struggling with sin? Because that's what this has the idea of also. 
Have you ever known somebody in that situation and they just feel spiritually weak and like they're losing the grip? And so Isaiah 35 gives this hope so that that grip might be strengthened. So here's the point that you need to understand. As in the midst of this, God gives this vision. God's desire is not to destroy those people. That's not His desire. His desire is to restore those people. And you've got to keep that in mind. Verse 4. Say to those who are faint-hearted, Be strong and do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Do you know anybody close to you that could use that kind of encouragement? You know, because if you listen close, you hear those sort of cries for help all the time. You ever hear somebody say, I just don't know how much longer I can take it? (laughs) Ever hear that? Or, I'm at the end of my rope. I can't do this anymore. You know, we live in kind of challenging times right now, right? But I want to suggest to you, it's not just this pandemic that's challenging. See, I want us to think beyond that. Because sometimes you may talk to people who are struggling as parents. I'm at the end of my rope. (laughs) I don't know how much longer I can do this. Sometimes you'll hear people in marriages and they'll say, I don't know how much longer we can hang on. Sometimes Christians are just discouraged. I got this struggle. I got this sin that I'm fighting. I got this addiction. Let me let you in on a little secret. We'll keep this between us, okay? Do you know every Sunday when we come here, you know what we bring with us through that door back there? We bring problems. And some people might go, ah, you're kidding me. <laughs> no, we're, we're people. And we're living life. And even though you're a Christian, we face challenges. Now, I want to make this perfectly clear <laughs> before we go any further, because I don't want you sitting there thinking, who's he talking about? <laughs> Or is he talking about himself? Is, is him and Deb all right? <laughs> We're okay, aren't we? <laughs> what I'm saying is, it comes, and we have challenges, and that's the way it is. And that doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not. 
Christians face challenges, face problems, families, marriages, all those kind of things. In fact, someone said to me here not long ago, in regards to not just this church, just churches in general, they said to me, how come nobody in the church has any problems? Is that true? That's not true. But sometimes, we want to act like it. Well, let me tell you something else. Romans 3 and verse 23 says, We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's everybody. <laughs> so we can make it a little more close. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8 says, If we say, this is writing to Christians. If we say that we have no sin, we make Him a liar, and the truth is not in us. We do face challenges. Christians do sin. And we're still in the flesh. And we have to fight that. So here's what James says. James says, Confess your sins one to another. Pray for one another. That you might be healed. Confess, pray to one another. That you might be healed. And that word healed there carries with the idea to make whole. To complete. To restore. Now that's going to require a couple things. James says you need to confess your sin. (laughs) So that means we have to acknowledge. And he says to one another. So you know what the second part of that is? It's that other person. That you need to talk to. Now sometimes that doesn't happen. You know why that doesn't happen sometimes? (laughs) Sometimes there are relationships within congregations, and I hope they're developing here. That people make close connections and they have someone they can talk to, confide in, and pray for one another. But sometimes it doesn't happen. So a person has to feel comfortable. They have to feel confident. And they have to feel safe. Because if you don't feel safe, you're not going to do it. So let me tell you what I heard a preacher say one time. He didn't name names, so I don't know the inside scoop exactly. But this is what he told me. He heard about someone within their group sin that they were struggling with. He said, you know what I did? He goes, the next Sunday I got up and I let them have it. (laughs) I got up and I let them have it. I thought what was interesting about that story is he never did tell me that they came to him, that they confessed with him, or prayed, he prayed for them. But this is what he told me. He goes, they never came back. 
Is that the goal? James says, confess your sin. Pray for one another that ye may be healed. That ye may be healed. Not so they will hide, (laughs) but rather so they will be healed. And that takes a certain amount of compassion and understanding. And it also takes a recognition of what Isaiah is talking about in Isaiah the 35th chapter. This is what the Lord is working on. He's going to take this parched ground and He's going to make it like a garden. He's going to make it flourish. And as He's doing that, you know what He wants you to do? He wants you to strengthen those hands so that they will hold on. Not to break their grip. Strengthen their grip. It's like this. John the 8th chapter. Remember John the 8th chapter? (laughs) There is a woman that is drugged before Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes are there. And they say, Teacher, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. And Moses in the law says that she should be stoned. That such a one should be stoned. And then it says, testing him, they ask him, what do you say? So Jesus said, let the one that is without sin... Cast the first stone. And one by one, they start to go away. And so then he asked the woman. He says, Where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. But go and sin no more. That is not overlooking sin. You know what that's saying? I'm not judging you right now. That'll come. But what you have an opportunity to do right now is to go and to sin no more. You have an opportunity. Overcome that sin. Turn away from that sin. He's gracious. Do you remember Luke, the ninth chapter? When Jesus and his disciples were traveling through Samaria. And they were looking for a place to stay. The Samaritans really didn't want them in their area. 
So what's James and John say? Lord, would you like for us to call down fire out of heaven? Let us just smoke a couple of them for you. Do you remember what Jesus said? The Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Now, that's not what I'm looking to do. I'm not here to destroy people. I'm here to save people. So you look around. And people can be caught up in sin. It can be a child. It can be a spouse. It can be a fellow Christian. In Galatians the 6th chapter, the Apostle Paul said, If any man be overtaken in sin, ye who are spiritual, Restore such a one in gentleness and meekness, looking to yourselves, lest you also be tempted. It could be sin. It could be somebody that's weak in the faith. They're struggling. And he says, restore. You know, the Bible doesn't say that we have to be spiritual giants to help somebody. It just says that we have to be somebody who cares about helping somebody. And their grip might need to be strengthened. Might need to be made stronger so that they can be restored. In Proverbs 11, chapter and verse 25, it says, Whoever brings blessing will be enriched. And the one who waters himself will be watered. So let's make their grip stronger. And then he goes on to say, Make the feeble knees firm. Imagine this for a moment. I sometimes get the vision of or visual of. You ever watch somebody that's ran a, a marathon like one of those 26-mile deals? <laughs> Some people zip right across the finish line, but sometimes you have this person, and it's like they are just barely making it. They just got one foot. They're putting in front of the other. They're almost crawling, trying to. And if you saw them out there, we just run over there and just knock them over and go... God, just get out of the race. <laughs> or can you imagine a soldier that has been wounded? And so you just walk up to him and go, I don't think you're going to make it. <laughs> and you just shoot him. It's been said that the Christian army is the only one that ever shoots its wounded. Sometimes that's true. But the question is this. Do you want that said about you? I don't want it said about me. I don't think you do either. I don't want you to think you want that said about this church. 
No, people that are struggling, we want to help. That's what we want, want to be said. But sometimes people's knees are weak. They can't hardly stand spiritually. So let me give you another illustration from the Gospel of Luke. Remember Zacchaeus? That wee little man? Do you remember what Zacchaeus was? Zacchaeus was a tax collector. But he was just a wee little guy and he wanted to see Jesus so it says he ran ahead and he climbed up in a sycamore tree. A tax collector. Not only was he a tax collector, he was a chief tax collector. And do you know what people thought about tax collectors? We hate those tax collectors. Do you think anybody would like to have hit him with a rock? <laughs> and so Jesus comes along and he sees him up in that tree. And so does he just take a rock and go, I'll, I'll knock him out of that tree. No, he comes along and he says, Zacchaeus, come down. Today we're going to go to your house. And what do the people say? He's going to the home of a sinner. I don't know the whole conversation that took place in that house. But I do know what Zacchaeus said. You know what he said after he spent time with Jesus? The half of my goods I will give to the poor. And if I have wronged anybody, I will repay them fourfold. What Jesus say? Today, salvation has come to this house. Because the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. I didn't come to destroy you, Zacchaeus. I came to save you. Those Samaritans in Luke 9, they didn't like the Jews, and the Jews didn't like them. But Jesus took his disciples and went right through Samaria. And when James and John wanted to call down fire on them, Jesus said, uh-uh. That's not why I came. The Son of Man came not to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Now is the time to save them. And that's the way it's been from the beginning. I want to call your attention to the book of Genesis. And I'll just rehearse this right quick because I think most of us are familiar with it. Do you remember Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve are in the garden and then Satan shows up and God has told them not to eat of the tree of knowledge and good and evil but Satan tempts them and they give in to temptation and they violate that command. Think about that. Here's God who had made them, placed them in the garden made every provision for them, gave them a home, gave them food, 
gave them each other, gave them companions. There was nothing that was lacking. Just don't eat of that tree. And what do they do? They rebel against him. And they give in to temptation. And in Genesis, the third chapter, in about verse 8, God immediately, after that happens, shows up on the scene. And he calls for Adam. Adam, where are you? Do you know what Adam says? Well, we heard you, and we hid. And God said, why'd you do that? We were naked. Who told you that? God knows what's going on. And so finally, they fess up. How Satan had tempted them. Eve had eaten, and then Adam. And they had transgressed the commandment that God had given them. I want you to notice verse 14. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 14. And God speaks to Satan. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. God said, because you have done this, you are cursed. And that word cursed there carries with it the idea is to put under. This is the consequence. These are going to be the consequences of your actions and what you have done. One commentator said, but in reading this, what God pronounces upon him, it's almost to extricate. And what that means is to denounce in such a way that they are detested. They are despicable. It is to loathe and to bring punishment, to curse in accordance with their actions. And this punishment is irreversible. Because you have done this. In Genesis chapter 3, about verses 14 through 19, you get the idea, and I think rightly so, that God is there, the serpent is there, Adam and Eve are there, and they hear what is taking place. And what God is saying to the serpent, and that he is cursed, and they hear, he is loathed, because he had done that. And they hear that. Well, let me ask you something. For those of you who grew up in homes where there's more than one child. Did you ever see a sibling get in trouble? 
And maybe you've done something too. <laughs> and they're getting it. <laughs> and you're thinking, uh-oh. <laughs> I'm next. I'm next. Adam's listening to this. And he's got to be thinking, I'm next. I want you to see what he says in verse 17. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Did you catch that? Did you catch that? Adam's got to be standing there and he's got to be listening to this. And he has heard what God has said to the serpent. And you can almost, in your mind, imagine that as God turns to Adam, Adam has got to be thinking and his head turning away. Oh, no. And do you think maybe his knees were feeling a little weak right then? Do you think maybe he might lift his arm so as to deflect what he thinks is going to be coming his way? And he has heard God curse the serpent. But what God say? Because you have done this, you're cursed. It's not what he says. He says, the ground is cursed what not you the ground why because now is not the time because in back in verse 15 he's already said I'm going to put enmity between you, serpent, Satan, and the woman. And between your seed and her seed. And he will crush your head. You will brush it, bruise his heel. I got a plan. And I'm going to work out that plan. So Adam, right now, this plan has got to be worked out. So it's not you. It's the ground that will be cursed. It's deflected. But he says that ground, you'll have to work at it now to make your living. And it'll bring forth thorns and thistles. So the next time you're out in the yard, because oftentimes we look up at the rainbow, don't we? And we remember the promise that God made to Noah. The next time you see those thorns and thistles, you remember what God said to Adam. 
I'm giving you time. In Job, the sixth chapter, in verse 14, it says, To him who is afflicted, kindness should be shown by his friend, even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. When someone is overtaken in sin, that's not the time to criticize. That's not to overlook sin. But to remind them of what God wants for them. And what God wants for us. In the 10th chapter of the book of Job, Job says, You have granted me life and favor." Your care has preserved my spirit. Isn't that oftentimes what people need when they're struggling? And then he says, encourage the faint-hearted. Let me get back to Isaiah. Verse 4. Say to those who are faint-hearted, Be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, He will come and save you. See what Isaiah is saying? This is what God has in mind. This is what He is going to do. And in the meantime, this is what God has planned for you. This is what God wants you to do. You know what's interesting in this as you read through Isaiah and you see the condemnation that comes in the early part of the book later on Isaiah is going to talk about a man by the name of Cyrus remember Cyrus the Medes and the Persians the Assyrians are going to come The Babylonians are going to come. There's going to be captivity for God's children. And then he says, Cyrus, my servant. He's looking ahead over 200 years. And he's the one that's going to set you free that you can come back home. So God's working out his plan. In Matthew, the 11th chapter, in about verse 28, Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What's he saying? Now's the time. He wants to give rest to hands that need to be strengthened, that knees that need to be made steady, that hearts that need to be lifted up. You know, there's two things we need to remember whenever it comes to encouraging. The world needs more encouragers, that's for sure. But whenever you encourage someone, you can change their life. Because people struggle with life, they struggle with relationships, they struggle with self-image, they struggle with sin... They need to be lifted up. And so that's what Isaiah is saying. 
strengthen the grip, steady the knees, and encourage the faint heart. So Isaiah speaks of this desert. But he said this desert is going to be made to bloom because God has a plan. And then he speaks of a highway. And you know what the contrast is? It's very simply this. We understand highways, right? We drive on highways. We go places on highways. Some highways go down through the valley. Some highways go up over the mountains. Some highways go across rivers. Men build highways. You know what he says? God's making a highway. It's the highway of holiness. You know what Isaiah is telling them? God's building a highway through all of this. And on this highway, this is the one the ransomed of the Lord shall travel. And they shall come to Zion with everlasting joy on their heads and with singing and with gladness. And that's the road He wants you to travel. But while you travel that road, strengthen the ones who have a weak grip. Strengthen the ones who don't think they can stand any longer. Lift up those who are faint-hearted because now is the time that God has given for that. There'll be a time for judgment. And God will do that. But this is what He wants you to do now. God's plan was for their good. And God's plan was to restore them, not to destroy them. Today's the day of salvation, is what he's saying. And that's what we're saying. So I want to extend the invitation. Then any and all that are here, if you've never rendered obedience unto the gospel of Jesus Christ, why not do that this very day? If you're a child of God and not been living as you should and you need to be encouraged and you need to make your relationship right, that's what we're here for. That's what we want to do. So if we can help you in any way, you let us know while together we stand, while we sing.